This episode of the Bible Archives is going to finish our exploration of Eucharist. And today we're going to do so through a text, which is one of the earliest accounts of this ritual act in the church's history, and it comes from 1 Corinthians. And we might approach this form of Eucharist as what Paul says is discerning the body. And, and here's where we've been so far. We need to re-encounter this sacrament, this ritual, this act that is so important. And I think it's true that nothing rings with more elevation and sacredness in the Christian world than this act. At the same time, neither does anything reside on such surface-level understanding, which has possibly caused Christianity to be missing something in this highly esteemed ritual. We talked about the curse of knowledge. So we could have the debates of transubstantiation versus consubstantiation, apostolic authority in serving the elements versus the congregationalist approach of the priesthood of all believers. I'm not interested in those. I'm more interested in a simpler question. What is this sacrament actually about? And so we've explored all of these various angles. And this ritual certainly has taken on various meanings over time. But my agenda here is to establish a sort of re-understanding of Eucharist based on this earliest witness in church history. And so for that, we need to look specifically at the church in first century Greco-Rome in a city called Corinth. Why was the Eucharist so important to them? What role did it serve in the function of that church community? And how should it impact our interaction with the sacrament today? So let's start with the Corinthian context. The first letter to the Corinthians widely agreed that it's written by the historical Paul. And rightly so, this letter has been instrumental in ecclesiological formation, not just for Corinth, but for much of Christian history. And in contrast to some of Paul's other letters, this ecclesiological formation seems to be Paul's explicit purpose for the letter that we call 1 Corinthians. It also seems to be an apparent response to earlier correspondence between Paul and the Corinthians. And this letter is formulated as a confrontation to very specific issues that come from Corinth's context. Now, a word on Corinth's location. Corinth was a very valuable city and in a very important area uh, for the spread of Christianity because of its metropolitan importance within first century Rome. Uh, and Corinth's geographical and economic importance and the Mediterranean sphere of influence makes it even more important. For comparison, we could we could show Corinth as uh, it kind of inhabited a similar setting to 21st century America, like think of a New York City or Los Angeles. As a result, Paul has a lot at stake, and so he's straightening out theological issues, ethical issues, and especially Episcopal failures of the Corinthian church. And after many specific selections throughout the, the text, and they range through uh, this narrative rhetorical arc 
concerning current problems with the Corinthian body, Paul finally culminates his confrontation to a specific instance of importance, which he calls the Lord's Supper. And this also culminates the overarching force of his message concerning the letter as a whole. So how the Corinthians handle this gathering called the Lord's Supper will implicate the very essence of their identity as a church, which was incredibly important for who Corinth was in the ancient world. As we will see, this is what Eucharist is all about. So if we were to look at the rising action to the Lord's Supper, again, my, my opinion is that the whole letter uh, comes to a climax at 1 Corinthians 11, and then there's sort of a denouement for, through the rest of it. So everything that Paul's saying in the beginning and as it builds is, is moving towards this confrontation that he's ready to unload on them. And early we see that division is a driving theme. As a result, ordering the body, and that's a metaphor that Paul uses all the time, and it becomes especially important here, ordering the body is Paul's main focus. So in a very conflict-ridden and separated community, how will this body be ordered? Paul's answer is that the church body will be ordered in the pattern of Christ. Namely, he uses this phrase, Christ crucified. So leading up to the text on the Lord's Supper that both embodies and emboldens the body of Christ through Christ's body in one another's bodies, hopefully you're picking up on a theme here, Paul begins discussing the public gatherings of the Corinthian church in general with specific references to hair, which Paul commends the Corinthians uh, in how they've handled that conflict. It's just so interesting, like if you have to bring it up, it was obviously a problem, and he commends them for how they've handled the issue of hair. Uh, he references the household body and its role in the larger church. And then he moves into issues of gender pertaining to their coming together as a church body. And all of these discussions are fascinating, and they're confusing, and they reveal much more than you would think on first read. But hopefully you understand that he's focused on the body, so a person's body, the household body, so a family, and the church body, and all these bodies are supposed to be ordered in a particular way based on the division that has been experienced and uh, the ethical issues as well that the Corinthians have been mishandling. So after all of those discussions... Paul references uh, how the Corinth are a part of Jewish ancestry, which is interesting because the people he's writing to are predominantly Gentile. Uh, so he gives them this uh, Jewish roots that is a recommendation for them to learn from. So again, an unusual claim to heritage as very few members of the Corinthian church would have been Jewish, yet Paul calls Israel their ancestors anyways. And I, I think that is actually really important the Corinthians are to take Israel's failures as a warning for their contemporary situation. Paul then moves from the general gathering to a specific concern that calls back a previous confrontation in the letter and alludes to forthcoming focus that recapitulates Paul's arguments about the Corinthian body, and this happens in the form of eating idol meat, so meat sacrificed to idols. 
And the two interacting concepts in this discussion are the perspective of rights that come from knowledge, which Paul has explicitly challenged several times, and the ethical action of eating food sacrificed to idols, both of which are indicative of Paul's upcoming proposal on the Lord's Supper, and both of which seem to set up Paul's focal point of that meal. So again, as you're going through the letter, it kind of starts with you know issues of division and rights and knowledge, and then it starts getting into very specific ethical situations about the body and then about the church and about how they gather. And now he's talking about specifically food and how that interacts with culture and what that means for the body and their rights and their knowledge. I hope my point so far is clear. You can't understand the discourse on Eucharist without reading it in line with the larger argument the author of this letter is making. This is one cohesive argument, and we could sum it up as the effects of eating and the selfish grasping of elitist knowledge to justify their rights are kindling for the prophetic fire Paul is preparing to unleash to transform the Corinthian body when he talks about the Lord's Supper or Eucharist. The contrast here is that everyday social and religious life in Corinth and how it relates to pagan culture versus the demands of being part of Christ's body are the point of the letter. The sociocultural landscape specific to Corinth has given uh, certain knowledge and rights to certain individuals. Okay, again, think 21st century America. Everyone thinks they are the authoritative intellects, right? Have you scrolled through Twitter lately? Some members of the community, therefore, have alluded to their knowledge as a means of accessing certain self-centered rights at the expense of the larger community. And that's the issue. Paul's confrontation, again, is to compel unity, oneness, and ordered differentiation. See, diversity isn't the problem in Corinth. In fact, diversity seems to be a benefit. A lack of unity within their diversity is, however, a problem. So the prescribed posture is one that they may know about their rights. And this is all coming from the conversation on idol meat, which comes from the conversation about the gathering and the household and gender and hair and all of that. They may know about their rights, but they also must willingly forego those rights by discerning differences and building up others through love. The foreshadowing of Paul's largest concern in the letter is becoming more transparent. Paul is claiming that this knowledge does not justify flagrancy with community members. And in fact, their holding on to their rights is tearing the community apart. As will be true concerning the Lord's Supper, what you know is not important. Rather, how you are known is important. In the rising action of Paul's letter, then, the Corinthians are forced to wonder if they are playing fast and loose with Christ's body. You know, spoiler alert here, they are. And that's why I, I really think that the whole beginning of the letter, yes, it's to address certain issues, but, you know, Paul's just ramping up for where he's going. He has them right where he wants them uh, as he approaches this, this fulcrum of a conversation on Eucharist.
what that means is that the primary question here is of community. So the text moves into a demand to give up one's rights for the sake of the supposedly weaker members of the community. And this is not a command that is given to everybody. This is specifically for members of the church, the people who take on the name Christian in that city called Corinth. What is done with perceived rights has the potential to unfold in a cruciform pattern or a selfish one. Rights versus community, then. Those are becoming more and more mutually exclusive in the uh, what we might call a communitarian perspective. And that's all coming to light in the letter. As an alternative, what, what happens is Paul pleads that they imitate him. And, you know, you hear people quote this, this line a lot, that he draws his life from Christ and therefore exemplifies this pattern as evidenced by the rights he has given up as an apostle. But really, he's trying to tell us something about Eucharist that makes us really interesting, that generosity and patience, loyalty and affection, responsibility and care with one another, these are the prescribed alternatives to using their knowledge and rights to get their way. Love must modify rights for the best interest of all. And Paul's saying this throughout the body of the letter. Really, he's wanting us to see all of that in light of Eucharist. Yet, uh, here I found this really interesting. Paul does not leave this ethic of love modifying rights in the abstract. He particularizes it in the experience of food. Remember, this is all kind of coming off of the, the meat sacrificed to idols. Meals apparently are at the heart of a Christian community. And as meals are also formative in the pagan culture surrounding this church in Corinth, a decision must be made for which identity will be chosen based on what kind of meal one participates in. See how this is all coming together? The actual form and structure of the meal gives an indication of what body you're a part of. So Paul moves now to criticize the Corinthians that rather than keeping the meal of the Lord's death, they have functioned antithetically to the cruciform body. They haven't been participating in the correct meal. And so now Paul is going to explain to them what has truly gone wrong. And the indication is that if they get this meal right, the Eucharist meal right, it actually is the key that solves the problems of everything else that is going wrong in the Corinthian body. So this is where we get into 1 Corinthians 11. And we see Paul is setting up the institution of the Lord's Supper. And, and usually... People talk about the institution of the Lord's Supper, and they just read the end of chapter 11. Well, the beginning of chapter 11 is about this as well. But not only that, the whole letter is about this. You can't have the institution of the Lord's Supper, you know, according to Christian tradition, without understanding everything Paul has done so far in the letter. That's why we took the time to do that. But what we find going into this chapter is the Corinthians have turned this meal, referred to as the Lord's Supper, into something more akin to a Gentile festival where the socially deprived or economically dependent latecomers are treated differently. So you get a reference to that in 1 Corinthians uh, 11, verse 11. And where the ones enforcing this failure don't seem to care, and that comes from verse 12. 
See, if love is supposed to modify their freedom and rights, they have failed to love, and as such, Paul says he no longer commends them for their gatherings, saying that they do more harm than good. And that's 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. And can I just say that I love that line? Paul basically says, your church services suck, and they do more harm than good. Honestly, how better off would we be if some churches just didn't even meet anymore? I just, I just That should be like the, uh, the internal question that churches should be asking themselves is, would, would Paul say that our gatherings do more harm than good? I, I, I love this. But why was that the case for Corinth? Because the very body that they are claiming to participate in is actually being dismissed at the very meal where that body is meant to be formed. That's the issue. And that's why them getting the Eucharist right will help align all of the other issues that are going on so that they can actually be a church. See, the meal here is not only uh, the, the culminating point in the narrative rhetorical arc. It is also the foundation of everything that the church needs to be. This, this is sacramental language. So in the opening of the specific text in question, uh, what's called the institution of the Lord's Supper. So this is chapter 11, verse 17 through 34. Paul offers some details as to what is going wrong. He says that splits occur. The meeting involving the Lord's Supper does not amount to eating the Lord's Supper. It's an issue. And then he says one devours their meal while another goes hungry and another is drunk. Within this situation, Paul implicates two categories of members in the church, the haves and the have-nots. Now, uh, a scholar named Dale Martin uh, articulates the socioeconomic setting of the Corinthian church, uh, and he's building off of Gerd Thiessen's work surrounding Greco-Roman dinner parties as a template for Paul's discussion in this part of the letter. So, both of them talk about the haves. They would be the ones able to arrive early because of their control over their time, and they would be able to begin their meal uh, at, at their leisure. All right, they're not working, they're well off, so they begin the meal whenever they want. This then begins the separation that allows some to be full while others are hungry. Further, the status differentiation right, of, of the haves and the haves-nots would implicate the separation being confronted at these meals. So in keeping with Greco-Roman dinners, the host, which would probably be somebody who's well off enough to have their own home and also not have to work, the host could decide seating based on the honor of the guest. So there would be a three-sided table called the triclinium. And the haves would have been the ones with houses able to host such gatherings and therefore dictate the seating process. And you would seat people at the triclinium. Uh, the, the ones who would be the most important would be the ones that would have access to better food and drink because they're closer to the host. So it kind of goes around the perimeter of the three-sided table to the middle. Um, and, and, uh, Actemeyer, Green, and Thompson have a commentary on this where they say there's also evidence that the Roman houses would not have been big enough to fit all of the assembly in one room. And so therefore, the Eucharistic gathering would have taken place in various rooms filled with people and separated 
according to their status and level of importance, which was dictated by the host. Uh, Anthony uh, Thistleton furthers this point where he says, quote, Moreover, by allowing the other only second-class hospitality in the atrium rather than first-class comfort and service in the host's triclinium, the proceedings defeated the very proclamation of the Lord's Supper. For the love of the other, the outsider and the weak, which characterized the death of Christ, was thrust aside, end quote. The point of contention that acts as the driving theme here throughout the entire letter is obvious. In fact, the division, separation, selfishness, and elitist antagonism that Paul has been confronting since he's, his greeting seems to climax in this rhetorical moment. What, then, is Paul's purpose for including what has become known as the institution of the Lord's Supper? Here's where I think we can start uncovering a very real point of Eucharist according to Paul. And here's the deal. Much devotion and liturgy and formation has resulted from this text. But I really do think all those things are fine, right? I think there's a larger point at stake. One that is less theological than it is an ecclesiological ethic, a church identity ethic. Here's how Dale Martin describes it. Quote, The primary problem addressed by Paul has little to do with a proper sacramental attitude towards the elements of the Lord's Supper, but is instead one of schism within the congregation based on social status differences. As Paul dictates his perspective on the Eucharist gathering in 1 Corinthians uh, at the beginning, verse 23 uh, through 34 of chapter 11, his stance becomes obvious in light of previous discussions. He begins this so-called institution of the Lord's Supper with reference to all gatherings being done in this pattern as opposed to the pattern embodied in their divisive claim to rights. What we could say is that this pattern he's referencing is in contrast to the negative ethic Paul has been confronting for 11 chapters. In the tradition that was from the Lord, which is what Paul says, they are to proclaim the Lord's death with Paul, emphasizing that anyone who eats or drinks in a way that is not fitting will be held accountable. Therefore, the Corinthians are to examine their genuineness before they consume the meal, unless they eat and drink judgment on themselves by not recognizing what categorizes the body as different. That's the institution of the Lord's Supper, right? And much discussion has been given concerning the difficulty of translating this section of text. However, the ideas become illuminated when held in, you know, what we might call like a symbiosis with Paul's rampant confrontations preceding and leading up to this moment. So let's talk about eating unworthily, eating condemnation on yourself, and being categorized as different. So when Paul uses the language of eating in a way that is not fitting or eating unworthily, that does not discern the body and therefore eats and drinks judgment or condemnation on themselves, what does he mean? Because this will be the interpretive key to how Paul views the essence of the sacrament, of, of Eucharist, of the meal. What does it mean to eat and drink in a way that is not fitting? How does this affect what the point of the meal is? And what, what genuineness must be examined 
so as to avoid participating in the meal in a way that brings judgment on oneself. Essentially, how is someone supposed to participate in this meal in a way that recognizes what characterizes the body as different? And I hope you're hearing that this phrase body has been brought up a lot so far through the letter to the Corinthians. So uh, Dale Martin, again, he deduces that the Corinthians, because of their lifestyle uh, amidst one another, are, quote, ingesting the material of self-destruction and consuming their own condemnation, end quote. So he's, he's saying that there's actually something in the elements of the meal that's doing this. Uh, specifically, Martin goes on to parallel that in conjunction with the previous discussion on idol meat, the fear would be that participants would receive uh, the Greek word pharmakon, a toxic poison in association with the mysticism of food. In other words, eating idol meat may incur daemon, right? So it's toxic. Is it so that eating Christ's body might produce a similar toxic effect on the community if done in the wrong way? And if so, what is that wrong way? Is this why Paul later mentions, so in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 30, for this reason, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Uh, Dale Martin believes this, this is the connection that results from unworthy consumption. Uh, I'll quote him here. Contrary to traditional sacramental interpretations of this passage, Paul is not concerned that the Corinthians are not exercising a proper attitude of piety towards the sacramental elements, or that they are disputing a certain doctrinal position on the nature of the elements. But contrary to other Protestant interpretations, Paul's assertion that certain Corinthians are getting feeble or sick or dying is not merely a metaphorical statement about some spiritual malaise or a reference to judgment that is casually unconnected with the eating. The overall context indicates that Paul is very much concerned about the Corinthians' bodily state. And what he means by eating and drinking unworthily is related to the body, in this case, the body of Christ. Paul focuses his argument on the fracturing of the church, the body of Christ. His solution to the problem surrounding the Lord's Supper is a social one. Heal the fragmented body and restore unity, end quote. Unworthiness consists in participation in the destruction of the integrity of Christ's body, and that will occur by how one physically participates in this meal, which is supposed to form a Christ-crucified body for the good of all things. And so you have the haves in Corinth, by reinforcing social distinctions in the church, they're dividing the church. They are quite literally tearing apart Christ's body by opening the body to these splits and presumably then opening their bodies to disease and death. Here's what, despite all this pharmacon, daemon, all that, here's what I think is going on here. You cannot eat a meal meant to inform selfless love and communal unity, while separating, dividing, and being at odds with one another. Can't. That's what Paul seems to be so focused on, that the very meal 
meant to inspire them to be the actual manifestation of Messiah's work is actually the meal being used to cause the opposite. Martin uh, furthers this imp- interpretation stating, quote, By promoting the dissolution of Christ's body, the church, the strong at Corinth render their own bodies vulnerable to the pharmacon of Christ's body, the bread. Their schismatic actions alienate them from the true body of Christ by tearing apart that body. The body of Christ that they consume is now an alien agent that brings disease and death rather than health and salvation to their own bodies, and they consume their own condemnation. End quote. While the interpretation connecting the Eucharist with disease and death requires more discussion, I, I understand that. It does help make sense of Paul's inclusion of such a statement within the institution of the Lord's Supper. However, it's Martin's, uh, Dale Martin's larger emphasis on the meaning of eating unworthily that helps draw meaning into Paul's point of this text. Uh, Anthony Thistleton forces this view of the body further. Thistleton heightens the importance of connecting this text with the previous problems enumerated throughout the letter, particularly by Paul's allusion in uh, chapter 11, verse 18, on their division. So specifically, uh, Thistleton writes that this is about, quote, the theme of disrupting the community and undermining the nature of the cross by self-affirming assistance on individual or group freedom, rights, and celebration continues the issue which dominates chapters 8 through 11, end quote. This emphasis on ecclesiological or church identity ethics and its connection with the rest of the letter is furthered by Thistleton, quote, The focus on proclaiming the Lord's death, therefore, serves as a parallel to the central point in chapter 1. If the cross stands as the ground and criterion of what it is to be an apostle and a Christian believer, then the splits of chapters 1 through 4 undermine the heart of the gospel. It is the same with this meal. End quote. Remembering the Lord's death and eating in a manner that is worthy and that does not bring condemnation is not necessarily a matter, first and foremost, of worship or ritual, but one of conduct and lifestyle. So now we have to ask another question. What does Paul mean by body? So we use that word a lot. This invites a question and a discussion on the use of the Greek word soma. Uh, so in English, we'd, we'd write that as S-O-M-A. Usually, soma gets translated as body. And specifically, so think of uh, chapter 11, verse 29, discerning the body. It's discerning the soma. So what is the soma? What is the body that Paul is discussing? Is it the Eucharistic substance of bread, right? Is that the body? Is it the actual body of Christ? So now we're getting to some transubstantiation, consubstantiation stuff. Is Soma a reference to the church as Christ's body? Or is Soma a reference to the body of the Christian uh, individually involved? The answer, you know... Is it the substance, the elements? Is it the body of Christ? Is it the church's Christ's body? Or is it the body of the people involved? The answer is yes. It's all of them. If this is the case, then, 
Paul's emphasis on discerning the body makes makes this absolutely fascinating. What body are you discerning? All of them. Which is what Paul has been talking about the entire time through the letter. This meal becomes a tactile representation of Paul's ecclesiological ethic. And the climax of how this ethic will be embodied in the Corinthian church comes from discerning the various soma that are interchangeably involved. So yeah, there should be a proper handling of the elements and respect for the nature of Christology involved. Sure. But it also means being liable for the presence of Christ's body that one is interacting with. Remember, we used that Nathan Mitchell quote, that Christ is not on the table, Christ is at the table with us. But take it even further. Discerning the body means understanding the significance of a united church body and properly treating the social entity of that body in respect for its function. But it also means appropriately treating a neighbor as a means of properly discerning the body. How you discern the body deals with all of those. Paul's beliefs about the nature, role, and execution of the church is evident within what he is doing in this text. That's why this is the climax of the narrative arc of, of this whole ecclesiological confrontation. But there's, there's even more that can be said here. How do we do this? How do we discern the body? So with all the stuff that we've covered on Eucharist, uh, sacrament, small s versus big S sacrament, the great Thanksgiving, memorial, epiclesis, mass, communion, all of this stuff, I think we find a tactile rootedness in this text. One way of articulating Paul's focus is to recognize what characterizes the body as different. And if the specific point of this text is to examine our own genuineness in relationship to the meal, it may serve Paul's larger purpose in the letter of doing so as an example of what responding to being this different body means, while also implying the necessity of participating in this meal as being a microcosm for what will ultimately define and form what it means to participate in this kind of church community that is supposed to be inherently different from communities in which Corinth is surrounded. Participating in the death of Jesus and of identifying with the cross of Christ is Paul's call to the Corinthians to confront the kind of church they are called to be. This is who they are. And it's the microcosm that defines this is in the meal. And if you do the meal in a way that acts counter to it, the whole body is going to be messed up. The way in which they engage with this meal will determine their effectiveness and their participation as Christ's body. And how we do this today is of equal importance. And much can be gleaned by learning from Paul's descriptiveness. So first, let's talk about the cruciform pattern of living and belonging. Because practically, Paul ends the text by encouraging the Corinthians to wait for one another as a means of properly discerning the body. So that's verse 33. This would require the haves to modify their behavior to mitigate their status differentiation. If they are to begin looking like this body, they have to modify their rights. 
at the actual meal. And if they can do it at the actual meal and then therefore take on the identity of the meal, how much more are they going to be able to embody that practice with one another in all of the various issues that come up? In first century Corinth, this is a, the explicit example Paul gives as a requirement for properly participating in communion. And here's the deal. We talk about uh, discerning the body, recognizing what categorizes uh, the body as different, um, uh, reflecting properly so that we don't uh, ingest our own condemnation. And the church throughout time has made that into a lot of different things. And depending on what tradition you're from, there's going to be a different interpretation on it. Literally, Paul's answer to that it is waiting for one another is the standard for engaging the sacrament. This is how one discerns the body and genuinely takes in a crucified body to become a part of that crucified body. That's not quite the demands we hear today before, you know, we uh, exclude people from communion. But let's go further. The status differential, the cultural context of the powerful being able to get to the gathering early and become overstuffed and drunk, it may not directly apply in a modern setting. The pattern of Paul's vision that seems to be the requirement for this meal of behaving in a way that reverses normal cultural expectation and lives out this communal pattern of cruciform ethics, that part might be applicable. Which, in and of itself, seems to be the point of the entire institution of the Lord's Supper. Maybe we could say it this way that the body of Christ patterns the church community as the body so that individual bodies are broken and poured in the cruciform pattern of ethics together. That's how you approach the meal. This text is about a corporate, ecclesiological, Christianity-defining ethic. Therefore, Eucharist is as well. Eucharist is about looking like Jesus together as the intended image of God that the whole world is meant to exist in. So let's talk about the logic of the meal then. Right? A, a, you know, we could say it's a crucified body of self-giving unity. Right? That's what Paul's trying to say. And again, all of the, the theological and doctrinal uh, assumptions and conversations we have about the, the sacrament you don't really find those in here. What you find is, in the meal, the logic is to be a crucified body of self-giving unity. If the words of institution are to address the problem of division, just as Paul's words at the beginning of the letter on the cross are meant to address the division of the community, then we are invited to question how our communal body today reflects the Eucharistic crucified body that we consume. The transposable question to our culture being asked is if the ecclesiological identity discerns the body communally. If it looks like the idolatrous meals of Roman culture that are full of gluttony, exclusion, denying participation, and elevating the status of some at the expense of others, then we will certainly eat and drink judgment on ourselves. Unless we share our lives in replicating the pattern of Jesus' death, then we are ingesting something that will expose our own condemnation. See, the purpose of the meal is to be formed into that kind of body. And if you participate in the meal in a way that contrasts 
that very body while consuming those things, you're going to be exposed. It's going to expose that falsity. The response of the cruciform community should be the opposite of selfish elitism that dominates our contemporary world today too. For the logic of this meal is the self-giving that brings life, not the self-asserting that brings death. As we have seen, you know, this whole text of 1 Corinthians is about unity, a, a specific kind of unity that patterns itself after Jesus' life and therefore his death. It is the invitation to give up our rights in a communitarian ethic. When we make demands, when we elevate the self at the expense of another, we are not keeping with the shape of the body. For this body is a crucified, selfless body that we are taking into our body so that our bodies together will become the form of that crucified body as part of the form of a crucified collective body. To not only believe, but participate in this is the point of the meal. When we eat in a way, practice economy in a way, relate to each other in a way, and generally conduct our lifestyles in a way that is not in keeping with that body. It judges and exposes us. We bring that upon ourselves. When we do live in the pattern of this crucified body, though, the meal informs our continuation of being that body. Not only is this to be the heart of our ecclesiological life, but it is also a pattern that ought to condition the emanating life of the individual and the community together in economic practice, political practice, relational practice, and in the driving imagination of that community for who it will collectively be in the world. Being shaped by the body of the Lord should look a particular way and therefore create a particular kind of world. The meal serves as a means of defining us in that way so we might accomplish this identity and this role. Now this is what I mean by discerning the body. Because not only does this have implications for how we approach the sacrament of Eucharist, this should also be the examination which precedes every Eucharistic event and act as the tactile expression in response to our ethics as a corporate community. This message also from Paul should dictate the very identity of the church, its purpose, and its ensuing effects in the world. We could say that to take communion is like taking a vow. It is a commitment to take in this body and this blood so that it becomes our bodies and our blood together for the ongoing good of the world. If Paul's letter is still scripture, that may be the invitation of these words today. We should look like this body and the sacrament ought to be our tangible process of ensuring that we do. Now, a couple side points here. First, this makes me consider what does this mean for defining who is a Christian? Because if this is not about believing certain things, but about whether or not we demand a lion's share of the resources or whether or not we prioritize the weak and make sure everyone has enough, then we, we may need to challenge who and who is not discerning the body. Can someone outside of the Christian intellectual ascent discern the body? Well, are they doing those things? Are they shaped in the pattern of a crucified body? If we take Paul's theology seriously, 
belonging to the body and taking on this identity may not reside in our heads, but in our hands. What is the indicator of a member of Christ's body? It's whether or not they discern the body in this way and therefore look like this body. That is our litmus test for a human's belonging to what Jesus called the kingdom of God. This text may have more to say about inclusion than how we include one another in the internal community of the church. It may force us to ask questions on how we include those we may not consider part of the church in the first place, but who may also be manifesting this body in the world, which is the whole point. And you can think of examples like Melchizedek or Jethro. If, if the point of the Eucharistic meal is to inform how to be the body so that we look like the body. The, the meal doesn't exist to gauge who is in or not. The meal exists to help transform us to be that body. If somebody already is being that body, are they not part of the body? It becomes a very uh, complex question, but one that's worth asking. Secondly, what does this mean for Christian communities looking different? Because this conversation can also emanate from the text around uh, the Christian practice of meals in particular. This is why Paul includes eating meat sacrifice to idols. The distance between our agricultural system and the Eucharist may be up for discussion if we take Paul's word seriously. Not only do we often fail to connect our church meetings and various other mediums of church representation with the cruciform pattern of belonging— Right? Like, rarely does church marketing and content look different. In fact, beyond using the label Christian, very little categorizes many churches as different according to this different body. But further, when we reduce the Lord's Supper as described here in Paul's letter to a short section of a service so we can get home for our next schedule activity, we make it even harder for people to connect what we are calling bread and wine to the goods of life that make for salvation. Part of our task in response to this text may be to restore the knowledge and connection of what we put in our mouth when we remember the Lord's body and the Lord's death. The goods of life embodied in the meal, the economy behind them, the act of sitting and sharing goods may actually implicate our ability to imagine what is real and what this body might really look like. This is especially true in an economy and, by extension, a church culture that has allowed the disappearing of the links between where our life comes from and how we consume them. Is there a relationship between our daily bread and the bread of the crucified Jesus? Do the agricultural practices that sustain our life have something to input into our practice of being that kind of body? Is it more important to have a meal that displays this different kind of ethic and community than properly reciting sacramental liturgy? Paul may be inviting us to see this as the case. We have to ask questions about our lifestyle, but also about the practices itself and how they are looking like this different body. That's, I think, the, the crux of Paul's argument for how this has implications for the church. But I want to end with this. Whatever specific perspectives we entertain from this text in our contemporary world, one impetus seems to transcend cultural context. 
The generalizing point of Paul's invitation in the Lord's Supper is that the world should be able to discern this body in us. When we live as an ecclesiological body, does the world see this cruciform pattern put on display? The answer to that question will indicate whether or not we have discerned the body as our ecclesiological identity, and whether or not we still uphold this letter as an indicator of our ethical ideal. We have to ask, how are we like the Corinthians? What, what would Paul say to us that he would then climax to a point of saying, and how you participate in Eucharist will determine whether or not you are actually the body of Christ in the world. It all connects. It all comes together. And as we have seen with Eucharist and the great Thanksgiving and memorial and epiclesis and mass and communion, the sacramentality of this is that what we experience in the meal produces a particular way of being in the world that has the potential to change the world. Can the world discern this body in us? The answer to that question will tell us if we are actually participating in Eucharist. <laughs>